kiss the girl and wipe away the debt. That was the deal. The details elude me now. But the details wouldn't change a goddamn thing. episode of Vox Bobcast and not the very special kind of different strokes, Blossom, Punky Brewster episode. It's a different kind of very special episode. I have all three of my co-hosts here today. Hey, Wayne. Hey, Hannah. Hey, 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 (laughs) 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 This is our anniversary episode. This is the 52nd episode of Vox Popcast. We have been doing this for a year now. I guess technically, but we missed one week. So this is 52 weeks since we've been doing this. Next week, we're going to reboot with the new 52. Uh, No, we are not. (laughs) No, next week can be 52.2. Ah. Uh, It's like, oh, if new 52 and everyone just becomes really, really gritty and. No, no, no. I already have a gravelly voice this week. I don't need it. I don't need it. Ignore all of our own continuity. (laughs) Yeah, we're not doing that. (laughs) Okay. But never mind. I almost want to do, and maybe next year in April Fools, but like, because we, we didn't do an April 1st episode this year, but I almost kind of want to do that now as like a, just like sort of a, you know, what would Fox podcast be like in the gritty, grim universe of. <laughs> 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 yeah, we don't need to get any grittier. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. So, anyway. Somewhere, I think I was in New Orleans for one of the for one of the conferences, and I couldn't remember where I was just because I'm like I've been moving around so much. <laughs> but one of the things that we said on that very first show, and we were talking before the show, we never really explained what this show is about on most episodes. But this show was designed to sort of give us an opportunity to do academic conversations, academic conferences every week, but not serious scholarly ones, goofy, silly ones, because that's just what all of us are. <laughs> so, but it's been fun doing that for the last year. And that's, you know, what we're going to continue to do. So we thought since we are once again going into conference season, in fact, this year I've got one next week and one the week after that. And then I'm done. I'm not doing the crazy three in a row thing, but, um, we're all going to be at one conference. We've mentioned it a couple times in the show, PCA, CA, NDC. We're all going to be there. So we are going to so work with that. Who, for people who don't know what PCA is, what is that? PCA. PCA is the Pop Culture Association slash American Cultural Association. And the ACA gets no love. It's technically a different organization, but but they, they hold a joint conference every year somewhere in a big city. And nerds of all disciplines converge to talk about their stuff. This year we're converging on D.C. 
on DC. Yes. That would help them. <laughs> <laughs> but leading up to it, we thought we'd do something um, a little different. Hannah, you want to talk about it? Sure. Uh, so uh, in Mining Copy's English department at Duke, the grad students put together this thing called Works in Progress. And uh, it's where grad students can uh, present work that is in progress. Uh, sometimes it's a conference paper. Sometimes it's a chapter um, of their dissertation. And uh, this is really cool because we all work on different things. Uh, like I work on 18th and 19th century literature. Katya works on video games. We have people who work on Shakespeare, et cetera, et cetera. And we all gather and get to hear work outside our field and give feedback. And it's really great to get feedback um, from people both in and outside your discipline. Um, and it's fairly casual and supportive. And, and there's usually snacks and, and or drinks. Yes. So uh, <laughs> it's basically uh, this show, but uh, more focused on one to two people um, every meeting. Yeah. So like, yeah, the last works in progress I presented that I was presenting on uh, like the intersections of virtual reality theory and early American witchcraft, because that's the thing. Um, and the other person was like doing early modern and medieval studies and surprisingly actually our work overlapped a lot which was really neat um but yeah so hannah and i are gonna briefly talk about our papers and sort of if you want to see the full abstracts that we present uh we're giving at the conference you can see those on the blog but um we're just gonna kind of talk through some of our ideas that we're gonna cover in our actual conference paper and then discuss um (laughs) in that voice um and both hannah hannah you're also presenting in the um game studies section right that's correct we have organized um this podcast works in progress, kind of, with some order. Kati and I are both doing game studies, and Mav and Wayne are both doing comic book things. Right. Mm-hmm. So my paper um, is going to be actually on this crazy French playwright from the um, early 20th century called Antonin Artaud. And talking about his uh, theory of the theater of cruelty and then applying that to the video game Bioshock Infinite. I mean, assume that many of our, really, our, our listeners, I was called his readers, which doesn't make sense. Uh, many of our listeners probably have heard of Bioshock Infinite, which I'll get to. But Antonin Artaud is a little... Uh, weird. And it, so he's a very weird surrealist playwright, um, French playwright, who is really prominent in the early 20th century. Um, and he makes a bunch of very freaky plays. For example, my favorite, which you can actually find audio of, I'll try and send a link to Matt to put it in the show notes, is mainly of people screaming. Um, <laughs> so he that's, likes to that's make. What, that's what this show is going to become by the end, isn't it? Yeah, I'll just start screaming and like and start taking, speaking in tongues. Um, but that's actually sort of like his his idea um, that I'm talking about. The theater of cruelty is this idea that you make theater that basically traumatizes people rather than entertains them. He's ba- it's basically his critique of the European Western theater and the idea, and particularly the realist theater, which is just sort of like Hannah would know about this, but like the sort of uh, to sort of ventriloquize Eddie Izzard, the lots of people sitting in a room staring at a window and talking about their feelings. And so his idea of the theater of cruelty is basically you make you make plays like people screaming, um, depictions of violence, things that actually uses the language of like scarring the audience and the idea is this this makes them unsettled in such a way for that they kind of break away from their daily routines and the way that they perceive the things and this allows them to access their subconscious um and for Arto this is basically a way of deconstructing their daily lives and the way that they conceive of the world to access what is actually going on um beneath the surface so the reason I want to talk about Arto is because he actually uses this in terms of violence so he thinks of sort of theatrical representation in the theater of cruelty as you are inflicting violence on the audience to sort of jar them out of their everyday perceptions if that makes sense um, and virtual reality is actually part of that part of the thing that makes the, the, the theater of cruelty function is the idea that theater simulates a reality that is different from our own and that it's fictional, um, but it is still real in the sense that because it's a theater, it's made up of material components. And so this both allows, it's sort of, it's a literal virtual reality. It's real in the sense that it's material and it's unreal in the sense that it's immaterial and sort of fictional and imaginary. As a footnote, there's a Bauhaus song by the, by the name of Antonin Narto, uh, which we can link a video in the show notes. <laughs> 
that's really that's really cool. I, I'm, um, I'm kind of excited because I'm, kind of I'm wondering if there's and if this is you, please write us and let us know. In my in my imagination, my fondest dreams out there somewhere, there's a listener who's going, okay, yeah, obviously to everything that Katia just said, it, it, obviously that's who our toe is, but what the fuck is Bioshock? <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would dearly love that. Yeah. But um, yes. So the reason, the reason I'm talking about Anthony Artaud in the theater of cruelty is so he, he's talking about virtual reality, the way that the theater simulates a world, a fictional world. That's also kind of a material world as part of this theater of cruelty. So he's linking the idea of simulation and alternative worlds specifically to violence. And the thing that I find interesting about this is what he does in this theory is basically imply that it's not just that virtual reality has a connection with violence in the theater of cruelty because there's actual depiction depictions of violence happening there. Sort of like if you think about it in a video game, right? We see violent video games because there's people shooting other people. What the thing I find fascinating about Arto is that he allows us to think about video games as an actually inherently violent medium mm-hmm. and that the act of simulation itself has some sort of linkage with this kind of violence he's talking about, which isn't physical violence. He's not going out and punching his audience. I mean, he might, but like, I mean, <laughs> actually Arto would totally probably do that, but uh, he's not going out and punching his audience. What he's talking about is sort of this, this emotional intellectual violence that's actually changing how people think about the world. And so what I, and this is sort of where Bioshock comes in, for those listeners who actually aren't familiar with Bioshock Infinite, and as Mav maybe suggested, somehow really are into Arto, which if you are, please email me. Um, Bioshock as a, as a whole basically plays with American history to create these alternative worlds, which are kind of based on actual historical events, but also kind of like recycle them and into these own these alternate worlds. So they're both familiar and not. Mm-hmm. And the reason I'm interested in Bioshock Infinite is uh, it's a first person shooter. So obviously there's a lot of, you know, murdering people. Um, <laughs> but it also and it has this this historical element in that the world that the game takes place makes a lot of references to the American Revolution and the Civil War and a lot of this sort of early American iconography. Um, but in the game itself, there's a lot of actual revisionist histories that are constantly shifting throughout the game. And so what I'm t- I talk about in my paper is that basically throughout the game, both through actual time travel that the player participates in, as well as this sort of like uncovering this the history of the game world, basically the player's perspective on history and what the world is and their perception changes. Um, and in, in the sort of way that Arto talks about in the theater of cruelty happening through this sort of like unsettlingness um, of the sort of like traumatic theater. And in Bioshock Infinite, these moments of sort of like narrative change, narrative reversal and the player's perception changing are almost always accompanied by uh, the actual first person shooter mechanic changes. So, like, for example, the first one of the first ones when you find out that basically this originally utopian world um, is actually reinstituted slavery um, is the moment where you first actually start having to kill people. Um, And so basically my argument in the paper is that by connecting the actual mechanics of violence with these sort of like narrative and historical changes, Bioshock is actually doing in some way of a version of the theater of cruelty in a different way. Um, that's actually suggesting like our toe does that. It's not actually the depiction of physical violence. That's violent. It's the way that these uh, media artifacts actually change how you think about the world. That is a kind of intellectual violence. Scene. <laughs> <laughs> that's really appropriate given theater. <laughs> right. Well, and part of the reason I talk about Arto is, I mean, for people who are familiar at all with game studies and particularly virtual reality, um, Arto is actually the first person to use the term virtual reality. As, as according to many people, it's really hard to like actually definitively determine these things, and he uses it in the theater of cruelty in 1938. Mm. Um, so it's very pre-digital and a lot of virtual reality theory um, in general is grounded in the study of the theater and of drama because virtual reality is an inherently kind of theatrical medium, um, even more so than video games, actually. Um, so that's kind of like why I got interested in, in sort of thinking about the theater of cruelty in relationship to this, um, which we can talk about more in a little bit. But um, yeah, the idea was basically to kind of unite there's, as we've talked about the show before, there's sort of like this very cliched conversation around video games and violence and sort of like, and especially around mass shootings, um, which I also find really interesting for a variety of reasons. 
and this sort of other strain of discussion about like serious games and games that do this sort of like intellectual work. Um, and kind of this paper, I want to put those things a little bit more in conversation than they often are, because I think one of the things, and I referenced in the show before, I think that even though I think there's a tendency for a lot of people to reject the, like the video games have any relationship with viol- like real violence out of hand. It, for me, it's really hard to square the rejecting that in a fairly like unnuanced way with the idea that video games are educational and sort of like gamers learn things from video games. Cause to me, those are two very, like very different, but still connected versions of the same claim. So I kind of want to sort of think about how those things are related. So I'm looking, I'm looking at his picture on Wikipedia. And <laughs> so while, while, while you're talking, it's like, I, I looked him up and this is the most performatively Frenchiest looking person <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> This is amazing. Like if a if, if someone if someone in 1845 were directing a play about a Frenchman written by say Dickens, <laughs> Charles Dickens, uh-huh. that, that's I mean, to, to be fair, that may also be like the the particular selection process of Wikipedia, but like yeah, yeah. no, he, he mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, there's there's the beret, there's the scarf. It's just like, oh wow. So that said, my first question that I'm wondering, just given everything you said, is if we if we right. take the virtual reality and you call it the theater of cruelty, the mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how Arto used the term virtual reality because what, the first thing that's obvious to me is when I'm playing a video game of any fidelity, and I mean whether I'm talking Pong to Bioshock, anywhere in between, mm-hmm. there is an aspect of me as audience performing the action as opposed to when I'm at a theater and I mean anything from a children's puppet show all the way to Hamilton there's an aspect of the of the narrative being performed towards me so I'm wondering right. like it seems to me that theater of cruelty is all about catharsis but there's a different catharsis when when violence is enacted you know violence or anger or whatever you want to call it is cruelty is right. enacted for me versus when I'm performing the cruelty towards I mean, virtual beings so I would say I like I would distinguish from catharsis because catharsis has this element of like resolution and the idea that you sort of like through watching, you know, I mean, a like Greek tragedy or something, you deal with these emotions and they're sort of like tied up at the end and that allows you to like release them. Our t- the theater of cruelty is kind of the I think very much the opposite. Um, the theater of cruelty is actually about basically jarring people out of their everyday sort of like, I mean, essentially like to use a French word, their everyday ennui. Discomfort. Um, Right. Creating discomfort and basically, I mean, because Arto basically thinks that uh, modern European society sucks because everyone's obsessed with like these social niceties and kind of covering over the sort of like the chaotic subconscious. I mean, for reference, this is a person who died in a psychiatric clinic. So like, you know, he has but with a cool hat. reality with a really cool hat, but with, but with a cool hat, okay. um, I guess. I mean, I think like at least I don't know if this is actually true, but I know at least I've heard the rumor. He apparently also died clutching a shoe. Um, huh. <laughs> I think it was a shoe. Uh, anyway, he um, was involved in soul crushing behavior. Uh. Hey. <laughs> but like, for, so so for Arto, basically, he thinks that like conventional society is like covering over actually genuinely experiencing their emotions and like these like the passions of like the subconscious and what for him I, like I would say what he thinks is like the true reality and so basically the theater of cruelty is a way of getting beneath the sort of social convention in order to actually make people experience the passions if that makes sense so I think it's it's so I yeah so to me that's that's different from catharsis I mean the other thing I, I mean I think that what you bring up what you sort of reference about the interactive quality, it is different. So the theater of cruelty, like, yeah, he's dealing more with the conventional audience, audience of spectators rather than people that are directly participating. However, I mean, I think in the theater in particular, and Arto actually talks about this um, in his essays where he's talking about the theater of cruelty that are in the book, the theater and it's double, the audience has to participate um, in a theatrical production in the sense that, the material, like, so when you're watching a theater, you see like the set pieces and everything. You're very aware that this is not mm-hmm. an independent world. Like you're aware that what you're seeing is a fiction. So it does require audience participation to sort of like suspend their disbelief, participate in the fiction of the fiction that they're being presented, things like that. Um, I mean, we've talked about some, like I believe before, and Mav, you and I have definitely talked about this. There is no medium in which 
there like there is a truly spe- passive spectator. Right, right. Um, there's maybe differences in how that interaction happens, whether it's primarily sort of intellectual or like f- more physical with a video game pushing buttons, mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but there's always that interaction there. And what Arto is interested in is that intellectual interaction. And part of what I'm kind of thinking about in um, this conference paper, and also this is a conference paper that's sort of like building towards um, one of my dissertation chapters. So I don't get into as much here, but in the dissertation I do, is that actually sort of talking about how interactivity is a way to make, I wouldn't say the theater of cruelty more effective, but of exploring it in a different way. Because one of the things that the Bioshock series as a whole does really well is actually making the player make decisions that are really emotionally unsettling in a way and like making that a big deal as opposed to say like Call of Duty, which like you're killing people with headshots all the time. And that's not really sort of like addressed directly. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I think like the interactivity is basically, I mean, to to me, the interactive quality of it is part of what makes the theater of cruelty function is that you are being implicated in what in the theater of cruelty for Arto you're watching, but also in the video game, what you're actually doing within the fictional text. I'm wondering is, so a big difference between even what we consider interactive media today, most video games versus something that happens with theaters, even though theater, you are constantly aware of the fictionality of the universe. Like I know that I'm, I know that I'm not really, I don't know, on an Island if I'm watching the Tempest, right. Or, or whatever. Um, I know that I haven't really been transported back to Hamilton's time. There is a much more immersive quality to theater because it's happening around you inside of you viscerally viscerally where you can almost touch it the um than there is in film or even in a book in a novel um sure but i don't know if i would say that though well, what do you think? well i think it i mean you also have to remember that i mean like Arto's writing in the 1930s. So like film, like all of these media meant a very different thing. Back sure. Then. Sure. And even with a video game, even though I am controlling it in a way that I can't with the theater or even with, I mean, I can't, I cannot modify a novel. I can modify my perception of it, but I can't, right. I can't actively change the direction the way I can with like, I can literally decide that Pac-Man goes left, right? Like I can, I can just make that decision and he will and consequences. But are, this is all an illusion. Right. Well, but what I'm, so, cause what, but what I'm wondering though is, is there like what we call virtual reality now, because we don't, we don't have holodecks. Right. So everything that we do, there is a necessary separation to use the controls that I am very aware of. Even if I'm completely immersed in a headset, I know that I'm not really playing football when I'm playing Madden. I know that I'm not really killing anything when I'm playing Bioshock because I'm not like the, my PlayStation controller doesn't really work like right. a gun, you know? Well, I mean, like this is, I mean, that's also part of why when Arto is talking about the virtual reality in the, in the theater of cruelty, he's talking about virtual reality, not an alternate reality. Right. He's like, I mean, I mean, I won't go into like the immersive fallacy of, at length, but basically, I mean, one of the other things that um, when you're talking about immersion in the theater or any other medium, there is no such thing as immersive experience in which the, in which the user isn't aware of mediation. Mm-hmm. It like, this is something, I mean, this is something that talks, that comes up in game studies and virtual realities all the time, but because like immers- immersivity has been fetishized for a really long time, despite the fact that a lot of people like theorists and, and designers actually have shown that not only is it not something that's really attainable because the user is always aware of the interface. Um, it's not even desirable. Um, partially actually, because if you were actually killing people, if you believed you were actually killing people, in a first-person shooter, uh, you wouldn't play it. It wouldn't be fun anymore unless you're a very, very disturbed person. And Arto actually says a similar thing kind of in the theater of cruelty. Like, and part of why it's like, it's not physical violence. He's not maiming his audience to sort of do what he's doing. He's doing it in a way that is safe, mm. um, but still sort of, I would say, like traumatic in a limited sense. So he's trying to basically cause a certain amount of like benign psychological damage if that makes sense (laughs) (laughs) but like no really like so basically the idea is that like you have a really unpleasant experience that makes you think differently about the world and so like the ultimate outcome is constructive it's just coming from a really upsetting place it's sort of like i mean the nearest sort of like uh i mean part of it is also like i said 
died in a psychiatric ward. And anyone who's read any of his works or, or actually seen seen or read any productions of uh, uh, Arto's work, uh, it, I mean, he's a surrealist. All of his stuff is very sort of challenging, difficult to parse, doesn't make sense and all that stuff. Um, but the, near, like, the nearest sort of like simpler corollary I can come up with is actually sort of like, I mean, this is actually used in a VR too, but like um, exposure therapy. Like the idea that like if you're afraid mm. of spiders, you have to hang out with spiders all the time and eventually like you figure out how to deal with it. Desensitization. Um, yeah, and I mean, he's not going over after desensitization, but he's going after like basically exposing you to really strong emotions that you're not accustomed to in your daily life in order to sort of like break you out of your sort of normal shit. Does that make sense? I mean, and part of the reason, so just to, since you brought up the, the sort of like player control, one of the things uh, that's a theme of the Bioshock series as a whole is actually the idea that the user doesn't have a lot of agency. Um, so like in the first Bioshock, you actually discover, spoiler alert, which isn't really spoiler alert, that game's been out for a long time. Like, you basically find out that you've been brainwashed and you're actually being controlled by uh, basically like the villain of the game. Um, and that's less pronounced in Bioshock Infinite, but it's still definitely part of the idea that like you are constantly being controlled, you are constantly not really, you like your choices, you have the illusion of choice but everything you're doing is being influenced by outside considerations and you don't really know the entire story. Which is also true of video games as a whole. I mean, it's part of why Bioshock sort of has that built in is it's like it's a commentary on game design, right? Mm -hmm. Because I only have the choice to shoot somebody or not shoot somebody because whoever the designer is gave me that decision. I wonder if that sort of segue, Hannah, you were about to say something about the variance between when are you really immersed in you know, a play versus a novel versus a video game? Yeah, well, it doesn't really have much to do with Katya's paper, so it's fine. Um, I can instead ask a real question. I, I would just say I wouldn't make that assumption. I, I actually have a dumb question because I don't play Bioshock. Neither do I, by the way. Is it considered a first-person shooter? I, I know it has a plot, and I know I know the plot aspects of Bioshock Infinite specifically. But I, mean, but I think first-person shooter, I think Halo. Right. Yeah. It's still it's it's still a first person shooter. Like so basically, the only thing that stipulates a first person shooter is that it is in the first person perspective. You are shooting people. Okay. <laughs> I'm I'm old. I mean, technically, yeah. I think. I mean, it's like an art. I mean, like I would call that more of like an arcade shooter, just because of the mechanics. But yeah, it's it's still a first person shooter. But yeah, it does have a more like RPG element in that you're you're playing through a very elaborate, um, mostly linear story. Why were you asking about the Bioshock? Just to clarify, because you were you were you were talking a lot about first person okay. shooters um, in relation to R two, mm-hmm. and I wanted to make sure that I could see all the connections clearly as someone who, like, I, I know for sure. Gotcha. I, I understand uh, what you've been saying about alternate worlds, um, and I I know the plot aspects of Bioshock, and I find them really interesting. But yeah, hopefully that wasn't too convoluted. <laughs> It's kind of hard to take a 40 page dissertation chapter, squish it into a 10 page thing and then do it in a five minute. I mean, that's sort of why we're doing the show, because that's that is sort of what we are doing at this conference right. in a couple of weeks. It, it's sort of mine will also be a larger, you know, a segment of a larger section of dissertation condensed into an article and then broken down to a spiel for a conference that, you know, I'm going to try and get important ideas out right. there and then try to still be interesting, which, you know, is again, sort of like this show, but unfortunately I don't get to drink in the middle of um, PCA or at least I don't, I've never tried. <laughs> and you probably could. There, there is a beer studies contingent. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> They're interesting too. Do they have tastings as part of that? I don't know. I'm not going to one. I, wonder. I feel like they should. I mean, the people might go if they have tastings. I don't think they have tastings. I think it's, I think it's just panels about people who do like yoga at bars and like more of like the beer subculture kind of thing. <laughs> that, that from what I've seen, it's an odd to people who do yoga at bars <laughs> or the fact that there are no tastings. <laughs> I mean, more like I don't know. Apologies to all yoga bar enthusiasts <laughs> who listen to the show. <laughs> so, Hannah, what about you? What do you, what's your paper on? Okay, well, unlike uh, I think uh, most of you, I am uh, writing on something that's not in my dissertation, but is related-ish, kind of, if you squint. Um, (laughs) So uh, I did a dumb thing, which is I proposed a paper on Good Society, which is a new Jane Austen game, which according to, you know, its back cover 
quote, is a collaborative tabletop role-playing game that seeks to capture the heart and countenance of Jane Austen's work. It is a game of balls, estates, sly glances, and turns about the garden, at least on the surface. Underneath this, just as in Austen's own novels, is a game of social ambition, family obligation, and breathtaking Heart-stopping longing. So basically, it's Dungeons and Dragons uh, for people who want to live in a fantastical version of the Regency period. And why I say this is uh, dumb that I'm that I decide to write about this is that I uh, don't think PCA is the place where people really know about Jane Austen. Oh, and you'd be surprised. You would be surprised. This, this, this is your first time well, there. Then. Well, yeah. Well, by Jane Austen, I mean like people who study her work in the traditional sense. So I don't know. There's a lot of panels on Shakespeare and film adaptations mm-hmm. of Shakespeare. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I was going to say, you yeah. there, there are definitely Victorianists there. You're not going to be alone. I'm not. And secondly, yeah. You'll be alone. And secondly, um, it's a 15 minute paper, and I'm trying to do a lot of things. Um, and here are the things. I'm trying to do basically this paper is um, one paragraph in a 260 plus page like player's guide that made me mad and I wanted to explain <laughs> that. <laughs> that's like actually D&D that actually I'm trying to think of how long the D&D player handbook is that might actually be a little bit well that's about the same actually not nearly 260 pages um, some of the later ones are, certainly are <laughs> we have five years worth of players manuals at this point 35 years 40 years 50 years well I play 5e <laughs> so here is my shtick a lot of people over romanticize Jane Austen because of her satire or her romances which I would argue aren't that romantic, but that's another argument for another day. Because Darcy's an asshole. Well, not even that, but just like, even if you just read Sense and Sensibility, the dudes don't even show up for most of the time. And also one of them is way too old and another one is a mama's boy. And like, why would you want to end up with either one of those? Anyway, um, like when we read Austin in the context of an 18th and 19th century literature course, um, uh, it's easy for us, including instructors, um, not just the students, to dismiss the less savory parts of Austin because we like her. Uh, so things like, you know, the gender dynamics, the allusions to empire or classism can be like seen as outdated concepts from the distant past that like were just a part of Jane Austen's culture. But that's not really accurate or a good thing. Um, and as someone who has attended period specific conferences, I just got back ish from American Society for 18th Century Studies. I've met a lot of people who are very invested in protecting Austen and her characters from critique, even when they really shouldn't. Last year was a very contentious uh, panel. We went to a very contentious panel about mansplaining in the 18th century. And, and someone wrote a paper How to Marry a Mansplainer, all about Mr. Knightley from Emma. And he totally is. But a lot of people uh, were very offended by like people critiquing Emma, um, the novel, and Mr. Knightley, the character. And it's the most lively I've ever seen a conference panel get. Honestly, so my my point is this is all state. Austin isn't just seen as something valuable to understand the world from a historical standpoint, but it also is pleasurable in our contemporary moment. Um, and at A six, uh, which is the acronym for American Society for Eighteenth Century Studies, I recently gave a paper about teaching Jane Austen using board games such as marrying Mr. Darcy. Um, and what I found is that when students commit to the rules of the Austen board game, they are also willing willingly like participants in that world. And in becoming participants, they are faced with the fact that the harmful structures they as fans like to ignore still affect and shape our contemporary moment, like Empire. And so, and mansplaining, yes. Uh, for this particular uh, paper I'm doing for PCA, Empire is really important. Um, it's important to note that Jane Austen's novels are built on rules of behavior, how to act at a ball, who is welcome in gathering places like the pump room at Bath and who is not, and courtship rituals. And games like Mary, Mr. Darcy and Good Society are centered around players reenacting these rules of behavior. And I would say that Katya has introduced me to a video game uh, theory scholar in Bogost. And Bogos claims that video games, and I'm quoting him, make arguments about the way systems work in the material world, and these games strive to alter or affect player opinion outside the game, not merely merely to cause him to continue playing. And I would say, even though Bogos would not like this because he thinks video games are different than board games or role play games, I would say that this is the same for games like Good Society 
Good Society is educational in the sense that it wants to teach players about Austin's time, although it allows for players to choose minimum historical accuracy if they want. And in its rule book, it makes claims about what Austin's novels claimed to be about. And that's where we run into problems and why I got so mad. So <laughs> you'll be mad too. I will also say that there, like, there is um, a lot of the theorists that Bogos' work is based off of would also agree with Hannah in terms of like board games, other terms, forms of analog games doing doing what she says. Uh, so before the game um, in Good Society, players are asked to select rules of the world they will inhabit, especially in including gender norms. So players can choose the quote standard regency patriarchy, gender equality, or matriarchy, where women actually hold most of the power. So despite the attention the game gives to gender dynamics of Austin's world and its acknowledgement of the fact that during Austin's time, there was a toxic patriarchy, the makers of the game avoid the issues of race and imperialism that shaped Austin's time. The makers have claimed, and I'm quoting them, Austin's work is not about race and doesn't grapple with racial prejudice and racial prejudice does not exist in the game and characters may be whatever race they choose without incident. And it's also worth noting that a lot of the art. Oh, yeah, it's, it's worth noting that a lot of the art in Good Society, because they, they have gameplay cards and you have, you know, the player's manual that has a lot of illustrations. There are um, characters of every, like, color. Um, so they are very interested in representation. So, what you might think, okay, well, what's the problem here? Here's what the problem is. Uh, while their intent to include diverse representations is laudable and good. And I also want to say not historically inaccurate to point out that there weren't just white people running around England in the late 18th century, early 19th century when Austin was writing and living. The game produces an alternate version of history that allows players to ignore the structural violence hidden or not hidden, depending on your point of view, in Austin's works. Claiming Austin's work ignores race is inaccurate. Austin alludes to a state's being propped up by investments in the colonies, discusses the slave trade, and pushes racialized figures to the margins of her text. She even has an heiress of color. She's described as a mulatto in Sanditon named Miss Lamb. Sanditon was an unfinished novel, and Miss Lamb does not speak, but she's like a big part of the resort society. So race is all over Jane Austen. I also should mention that not once does good society mention empire. Where and like just you can't talk about England without talking about empire. Because wasn't this be like the height of the British Empire? It hadn't reached its like peak peak, but yeah, it's yeah. But it's like on its way. Yes, it's it's well on its way. And Edward Said okay. has famously like made the case um using Mansfield Park, which is all about empire and slavery and like the West Indies. Um that in Mansfield Park, Austin, quote, synchronizes domestic with international authority. And I can point to many places in Austin that allude to empire, race, and the slave trade, including Emma, which, if you've ever read, you know, is like a very insular novel. Emma never leaves Highbury, which is her um, home community. And, you know, even um, in Prime Prejudice, which a lot of people who don't really know Austin that well still joke that, like, Austin, like, wrote about the Napoleonic Wars without writing about the Napoleonic Wars. She tries to ignore Empire, but Darcy has a throwaway comment about how even savages can dance, which I feel like should tell you all you need to know about Mr. Darcy, but that's another story for another time. Um, so what I'm saying in this paper is that in ignoring the problems of race in Austin, good society reproduces and so perpetuates Austin's own cultural imperial logic. So by glossing over the imperial violence that propped up the country houses in which her romances take place, the game can deny that legacy was and remains inextricably tied to romance and polite society. And good society, uh, in the literal sense, becomes equivalent to white society. And by white society, I don't mean that everyone is white. What I mean is that good society becomes concerned with superficial representation, assimilation, and a milquetoast inclusivity rather than seeking to challenge the dominant imperial order. And given the investment in empire we still have today, and England still has today, they still see it overall, according to like the last polls, as a, like a generally good thing. David Cameron was like, I don't need to apologize for the empire because it was overall good. Anyway, this refusal to grapple with that legacy is intimately tied to Austin and it simply reinforces dangerous ideologies. And honestly, 
like, like Austin wasn't like a white supremacist in the sense that we use today, but it's it, yeah, right. The cultural norms, yeah, were, the different. Cultural norms were different. Race was seen differently, but you can, you can probably not be surprised that like, because of like how Austin's works have been represented, there's actually like a white supremacist movement. I don't really get into this in the paper that has taken up Austin and sees Austin and her novels as proto white supremacist. I have like, so two cl- one clarifying question and then one sort of just general curiosity question. General curiosity question to go back to like people at A6. Like, what are people's sort of defense of like the problematic characters of Jane Austen? Like, is it just like, oh, you're applying that like anachronistic contemporary standards to like a historical moment? Or are they like trying to recuperate like just gross people in that's, Jane Austen? That's um, that's okay. Because I can sort of understand i mean i say that about early sci-fi it's like i mean not as a way of like you can't critique this stuff but you also have to understand like yeah early science fiction misogynistic as hell because also like predominantly male genre also like you know 20s and 30s etc etc which doesn't mean you don't critique it but it's also mean you understand that it's a reflection of the historical moment that it's in yeah it's 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 both like like mr knightley like lots of people call him a pedophile because he's been in love with emma since she was like a teenager right and the category of pedophile is not the same. Um, is it even a, like a like no, would have been no. a category back then? And, no, no. And it also like as far as I know, and I, I don't think like I mean let me let me use the magic of Google. Um, but it, it was not like because I know that like it was fairly common not, to like I mean yes consider women marriageable much younger. He he's in his forties and she's in her early twenties. Yeah. Yeah, like, pedophilia is a kind of contemporary term, anyway. Um, but it's, you know, their their relationship is still creepy. Um, Wait, is, is, you're, saying, you're saying it's creepy, it's creepy to the, um, to the uh, 19th century, 18th century? Oh, no, 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 it's, no, it's, it's creepy to the modern audience. Okay, yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, oh, yeah. yeah, it's creepy, I and, mean, like, the reason why I think so many people who realize, who still realize, like, historically, Emma Mary Knightley was a good marriage um, in their terms and not a big deal still like say, but it's creepy is because so many people in our contemporary moment find Knightley to be dreamy simply because he's positioned as the romantic hero of the novel. Right. Okay. So there, so the, so the critique is like of the modern circulation and then the pushback against it is like, well, at the time it wasn't creepy. So it shouldn't be creepy now kind of thing. It depends on the person. Um, and then there are more nuanced, like pushbacks against um, critiquing Austin, like trying to, you know, recuperate Austin as a feminist or like, I mean, like Miss Lamb, the uh, heiress I talked about in Sanditon. Like I said, she's silent through like the novel that Jane Austen finished before she died. But there's, you know, arguments about why, like what her silence means and if that means that she's pushed to the margins or if it's actually an empowering thing because she is not put in a sort of like sentimental kind of trope that like other contemporaries, like the novel, The Woman of Color, put their heroines of color in. So it's it, it it depends. It depends on the person. Also, there's just an overall, I think, general sense of people loving Jane Austen for whatever reason. So it's easy. And I realize I'm going to throw out some names that uh, if you aren't fans of 18th century novels or 19th century novels, um, you might know. But it's easy to critique Sir Charles Grandison or Mr. B from Richardson's works as being boring or like mansplaining or uh, controlling or rapist. Um, Mr. B, sure. um, Sir Charles Grandison. Sir, Sir Charles Grandison is a person. See, um, also most like or a like, lot of or like Evelina by Francis Burney, which if you would love Jane Austen, you should read because it's up your alley. Um, but Lord Orville, who's the hero, is called uh, was called Lord Borville by uh, Mary Beth Harris in her paper at the conference uh, <laughs> this year. Um, so it's easy to crit- uh, critique, um, you know, male heroes of not Austin novels, but there's something about Austin that people are like, well, Darcy can be a douche, but really he's just kind of a nerd or whatever. I don't know. It's something weird. There's something (laughs) weird that just goes on because people love Austin. I guess it's because if you jump forward a little bit, uh, people are more likely, especially in academia, to point out that Rochester from Jane Eyre is a total scumbag and a rapist and he locks his wife on the third floor and lies to Jane and does all these horrible things. But like students... If they've read Jane Eyre uncritically before, they will try to find ways to 
say, oh, he redeems himself in the end because he tried to save Bertha or, well, he um, has a disability now. So like we can we can forgive him mm-hmm. or whatever. You know, it, I, I think it's, it, it's partially just because people have like a, a deep fan kind of love for Austin and there might be something else going on. But that's not exactly what's part of this paper. OK, so my other question so when you talked about so the, the rule book of, of good society doesn't basically address empire there. And when you're talking about the inclusivity and everything like that, so are they, do they acknowledge that like the idea of having, for example, like Elizabeth Bennett type characters being of any race, whatever age is anachronistic, but like for the sake of inclusivity, they want to address it or are they just pretending that this was not a thing at all? The sentences that I read out about how Johnson doesn't talk about race, which is a lie, are the all are literally the only things they say about race. And I like PDF searched. So they don't even acknowledge that like I mean, aside from the character you referenced, the vast pantheon of like Jane Austen characters are, are white. Or their race is unspecified, yes. Which we So Right, but at the time period, unspecified would default to there, and there are a couple there, there are a couple of characters in Austin that are referenced as to having tan or brown skin, but that doesn't necessarily make them a non-white person. Um, right. but they and you can certainly racialize those characters. For example, uh, the Croft family, who are part of the Navy in Persuasion, uh, they talk about their skin being tanned, and that like is an emblem of the fact that they've been overseas. But it doesn't suddenly make necessarily make right. But to, yeah. but to claim that like Regent, like basically like the Regency era was not racialized. Yes, and and like Miss Lamb, or like uh, you can take a character like Miss Schwartz. From Vanity Fair, a novel that's set later, Miss Schwartz um, is also an heiress of color. Uh, Thackeray is horribly racist about how he handles Miss Schwartz, even though she's a kind and talented and rich person. Um, yeah, so like, because I can I can see for like why for a popular audience like Austin, because I mean presumably this game is not being made for academics, so like I can understand why for a popular audience like. Austin does not seem to be engaging with race substantively, but on the other hand, like it seems that for a game that seems relatively invested in like the social norms of the Regency era to ignore all historical context is a little weird. I think, I think part of the reason why they have decided to do things the way they want to do things and said, uh, Austin's work doesn't grapple with racial prejudice is they don't want, and they say that in this game, racial prejudice does not exist. They don't want people to, perform you know racism in their role play that was actually going to be my question so mm-hmm. first off I, I think it's amazing that you've based this entire paper around just being just having an axe to grind with like literally one sentence in a 260 page book so so of, of game rules of game rules which is awesome and very much will fit in at pca but um what, what i'm wondering though is what is and this is where it becomes sort of weirdly meta almost connected with katia's earlier paper what is the purpose of and I don't mean purpose like what what is the 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 sort of metacognitive purpose of playing this role playing game in specific because it's the thing that you just asked and I'm wondering about because it seems like you were mostly mad originally probably because it's like Jane Austen didn't do this and you're like yes she did of course she did but there but that last thing you said where I'm sure they're trying to like they don't want their game to be an excuse for people to role people in 2019 to role play outdated outdated yeah, racist, racist characters. Um, like I think I think they're just very afraid that people are going to go, "Ooh, I'm going to play good, good society so that I can talk about owning slaves, which I've always wanted to do," which is not obviously a huge part of of Austin's work. So from the standpoint of procedural rhetoric and like the idea of, which is Ian Bogos' theory, the idea that you learn from the rule, basically like the rules and regulations of games by reenacting them. I can understand why the creators of Good Society would not want to re-encode uh, sort of like the racial prejudices. It is interesting, though, that they, I mean, as you said, that there's like multiple options for playing the game as like a matriarchy, as a traditional Regency society, like so that they're building in an awareness that there are ahistorical ways of playing the game, right? In terms of like the gender politics. So like they've acknowledged that there was a like 
sort of there was problematic gender politics and then you can choose how to play the game it's odd to me because one of the things that in in game studies is the difficulty of recreating historical periods because on the one hand precisely the thing that Matt brought up you don't want to allow like basically teach players to perpetuate these problematic norms but on the other hand you also don't want to do exactly what this guidebook is doing which is saying like oh Racial issues didn't exist in Austin's world. Therefore, you can play however you wanted. To me, it would make much more sense to be in the rule book. Like, hey, like, I mean, precisely what Hannah's pointing out. Like, there were racial problems in the region. Like, there were racial issues and issues of imperialism in the Regency era. We have excluded them for X, Y, and Z reason. Or even having an option like they do with the sort of gender politics where it's like, here's one way to play the game. It's historically accurate. Here's another way to play the game that's more open and you get to decide. And then I think, I mean, to me, that would be like the best of both worlds because it's like, you're acknowledging that there is this more complicated history, but you're also allowing players to have this more open, I mean, ultimately probably positive entertaining experience. I mean, cause this is the same thing that Matt brought up of like, you don't want people to be like basically reenacting slavery. It's like, well, you also don't want people to play the Regency rules in order to like basically be misogynistic dicks. Right. And, and this is precisely my point. Like I, I'm not saying we should play with racial prejudices because obviously no one is arguing that. Right. I assume. But what I am saying is, is that well, one imperialism is, was so embedded in the world Austin creates. Um, Eugenia Zorowski has a book called Taste of China. And in her final chapter, she talks about Northanger Abbey specifically, but other Austin novels and how just objects from China are just like every, like integrate into the everyday of Austin's world into like the bourgeois culture. And there's just no acknowledgement of that whatsoever. So like, you know, the things that we like about Austin, the, the tea party stuff, the, you know, balls, the, uh, you know, everyday life is totally ingrained in the imperial system. So if you, you know, refuse to acknowledge that there is that gross history, no wonder, you know, people see empire as something that's not bad for people, you know, who don't think about this on a day-to-day um, basis. And also, like, there are games like Ghastly Affair, which is uh, actually someone on my panel at PCA is presenting on Ghastly Affair. Um, and Ghastly Affair is basically Dungeons and Dragons with 18th century Gothic novels. And if you've ever... Cool. Yeah. If you've ever ever read an 18th century Gothic novel, though, you know that rape or non-consensual sexual acts are a huge part of the narratives that take place. And again, that's like a horrid thing that no one in the contemporary moment should or or will want to reenact. Um, Let's hope so. So, yeah. So I I don't know that I believe that. I mean, I do not have that much faith in the universe. I said should. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Should. Okay. So, so like, there's there's a rule. There's a rule book that says like players can't be forced into having non consensual relationships with others, but they acknowledge that it's a big part of the novels that inspired Ghastly Affair. Also, there's, you know, the X card in role-playing games where people can say, I don't want to role-play these things. I am uncomfortable. And you can make rules, like, outside of or in addition to the game as a group before you play to refuse to do certain things and to talk about the ethics of what you're interested in doing. So there's already, I mean, there's no perfect solution uh, because we just live in a gross world um, and (laughs) gross things happen, but there are certainly much better ways to handle race and empire and all the other issues that come with it in Austin, rather than saying it doesn't exist and Austin doesn't talk about it because she does. And they're just helping mask the problems. It's an erasure issue. Exactly. Um, And I mean, other people, and if you're thinking, oh, well, like one of the things you've talked about a lot on this episode is Sanditon. And I mean, maybe not everyone has read Sanditon because it's very unpolished and unfinished. They list Sanditon as part of Austin's works in the guidebook. So they know. Right. So yeah, it seems like this is like their... Like the game creators are not really doing their due diligence in terms of representing... I mean, yeah, and it may be like, I mean, I haven't read that. Or they're doing uh, it and they want to avoid it. I mean, that's, that's what it yeah. sounds like to me. Avoidance right. isn't a solution. There, there are other ways to handle this, which is, you know, all I'm saying. 
And I mean, I will say that the, the way that they're addressing it is part of the, I mean, I think that the way that the game industry as a whole has often addressed issues of inclusivity, it's just sort of like, oh, let's like, which I mean, it's not my sort of my area of expertise. I think that like, so, but like, I think a lot of those video games, it's like, oh, sort of like, uh, I mean, Defox Herald has a great article about this. It's like dropping in basically the option to like change the skin tone of your character isn't inclusivity, right? It's like you actually have to address like what you're talking about. You do actually have to address the issues that come along with that and the social like the social reality of like various different racial groups, um, gender identities, sexual identities and all that stuff. And it's like just making that an option to like design your avatar like isn't the same thing. And, you know, I think even though this is like a very small thing in comparison to the other, you know, 260-ish pages of the guidebook, I think it also like, I'm not saying no one should play Good Society. I own Good Society. I, I you know, use Mary Mr. Darcy to teach my students things. But it even calls into question, I think, whether we should reenact the Regency period. And if we do, like, what is our responsibility as players? Um, right. Well, this is, I mean, that actually touches in some ways to like why I wanted to talk about Bioshock and Arto because I mean, there's so much, I mean, there's like a similar question of like, what's the appropriateness of like enacting violence in video games? And part of my argument with Arto is that actually it's like, well, because if you like, I mean, in Bioshock does like does this at various points. It's like if you if you craft that to be a ethically intentionally ethically dubious experience so for example if like a game is telling you to kill a character but making it such a way that it's like horrific and whatever you're basically being prompted to it's like oh like the mechanics of the game may incentivize you to do x but like the ethical considerations of the like of being a human being tell you to do why and it's like they actually ask you to reflect on that i mean i think the interesting thing about video games as a whole is like it allows you I mean, in virtual reality and simulation and theater and media is it allows you to have these experiences of things that not only do you not want to experience in your daily life, but like as we're talking about with like the got like, you know, what's going on in the region scene gothic areas like that you shouldn't want to or you definitely don't want to. But it allows you to sort of I wouldn't say have a firsthand experience with it, but have a simulated experience of something that is outside of your daily experience in a way that you can think about it critically and intellectually. I mean, I think that is so like I mean I so yeah I mean I think that it's an interesting question of like what what the ethics are of replaying these things but to me I think that reenacting these periods in a way that's conscious of the problems with it is actually a really potentially help like fruitful way of having people like think about history but also I mean as you said with like uh, Mary Mr. Darcy like how these things continue to shape our like daily cultural norms. Yeah, for, for an uh, example of Mary Mr. Darcy and you know because you've played you can end up being an old maid mm-hmm. and <clears throat> you know like this is a contemporary game and there's just like a even though you can quote unquote have a happy ending being an old maid because Jane Austen <laughs> never married so you can become a novelist and potentially win the game as like a and our group of players has decided it's that it's that's what winning is is being the ultimate yeah is exactly because you if you if you or, or fitzwilliam if you if because you don't want to marry mr collins really if you no collins yeah. is gross darcy's an asshole yeah. so he's all right so so you know like if you being a novelist is a desirable thing but by deeming that old maid that encodes certain values into the game itself and makes marrying Mr. Darcy look like the thing we should strive to do. Right. Which like when we usually play, it's a bunch of academics. So it's like, we all know that like, yeah, we know Austin's history that in some ways it's referencing like Austin's own sort of like trajectory in life. So we're sort of, well, yeah, we have basically our own house rules for what winning means based off of that and sort of like our own particular predilections. But yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, that's, I mean, it's something that, uh, especially like the serious games movement that I referenced earlier and sort of like research or academically driven games, like this is a discussion all the time. It's like, how do you responsibly represent these things in a way that allows people to like have an entertaining experience because these are games and like part of what makes them valuable is that they're fun um, to a certain degree. 
but at the same time have that sort of like more intellectual critical stance encoded into the game itself and it's really challenging and i think it's it's which is why it's a really interesting field to sort of follow so we've resolved nothing (laughs) 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 yay we've resolved nothing yeah, and I say not that we were trying to resolve anything this time around. I think I think we can resolve that it's a bad idea to say that Jane Austen didn't talk about race. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, well, I'm wondering, uh, Wayne, are you as inspired as I am to become an old maid? Yeah, well, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, that's winning. I mean, according, according to our house rules, this is why house rules are very important in role playing games. <laughs> we really, we really need to do a D and D episode. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I, I actually find it interesting that in the context of this game, though, be, Hannah, you just said they they term it the old maid. That is the character yeah. class that they have created right. of old maid, which essentially is. I mean, you guys classify it as winning, but contextually, just from the name, this sounds yeah. like, hey, you have to take care of yourself because no man wants you, and you don't get to have sex or have babies. Well. It's not. It's not a. So it's not a character class. It's an outcome yeah. of that particular yeah. game. And there, there are different outcomes. Oh. So you have to roll for what kind of old maid you. And this be. is very Mr. Darcy, not good society. Okay. There are many. There are many Regency era reenactment <laughs> games. Yeah. I have learned from the last year. Good society. Marry Mr. Darcy. Marry Mr. Darcy. Expansion pack matches and matrimony. I could go on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's got to be a Pride and Prejudice of Zombies, I assume. They have an unbanned expansion pack of uh, for Mary, Mr. Darcy, that makes it harder to win. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, can we please play that? If you want to, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, this has anyway, been fun and yeah. educational for for yeah. us. I think we're going to do this again next week, right, Wade? Yep. With, yep. with me and you. Yep. Yeah. What are you What are you guys talking about? Give us a preview. Well, apparently, we've got to be way more intellectual than we normally yeah, are because I, it's yeah. a lot to live up to. <laughs> yeah, we're going like, to have like a 15 minute episode. <laughs> I can resolve something. Uh, well, yeah, I can well, resolve nothing much quicker than you guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, PCA, as we talked, we talked briefly. It's, it's a huge conference. There's everything from game studies and and comic studies like we do. We'll be do com- doing comic studies too. Beer culture. There's sports culture. There's things that are just on more traditional things like like Jane Austen. Yeah, there are so many. There's a couple of the music panels you know, I definitely categories. want to attend. So. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So, but next next week uh, we're gonna both. You guys are both in the game studies group. Wayne and I are both in the comic studies group. So just as a preview, I will be talking about um, the way in which gender and sexuality is encoded in artwork, um, according to my abstract, primarily through Rob Liefeld. But that was mostly just because I thought people would be like, "Huh, really?" and would listen to the talk. But it's, I'm talking more about just the general ways in which um, depictions of hypersexuality affect the narrative in a comic book. Wayne? Uh, I, I'm following just a, a more psychological track of the idea of self-discovery and discovery of, of personality. And, and I'm not saying this well at all. Dear God, I hope I say it better in the paper. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the journey of self-discovery uh, as specifically encoded in the work of Mage the Hero Discovered, a, a comic series by Matt, Matt Wagner. Uh, and not only the psychological hero's journey of the, the main character, but there is a character who is ostensibly one of the villains that I argue is also on a journey of heroic self-discovery or anti-heroic self-discovery. And his journey mirrors that of the protagonist. Mm-hmm. So. so that's if that's not exciting enough for you to listen to you next week, you know, <laughs> we will also, as per normal, be making a lot of dumb jokes and swearing, and I'm I'm going to have some beer. So. I don't swear. <laughs> Hannah doesn't swear. Yes, um, yes, Hannah's parents. Hannah doesn't swear. She's a good girl. <laughs> I'm a part of good society. Oh, if you will. Hey, okay. well, there you go. Nice little callback. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway. So that's what we're doing next week. And then we're, you know, hopefully as we are cramming to finish our papers and we'll be doing other exciting things. So, you know, be sure to check the blog at www.voxpopcast.com where you will find out about our future topics and our future shows. In the meantime, 
Hannah, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Hannah Lee Rogers. Uh, I think I've basically just started tweeting about Pet Cemetery at this point. So, <laughs> and, and us. I haven't tweeted about us actually, but I have a lot of thoughts yeah, I, on I, it. I, I, I need to go to that this afternoon. So, Pet Cemetery or us? <laughs> well, you should go to Pet Cemetery. I, I want to see it as well. Gee, so. I wonder who has <laughs> what in the in the box office game. <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's always making people feel very conflicted about going to movies now. <laughs> By the time this airs, there's an off chance that I could be winning. I'm probably not. Shazam's doing very well this weekend. So, okay. so <laughs> I'm probably not. It's probably not going to do well enough to beat Captain Marvel, um, which... Yeah. Or, um, you know, Wayne, Wayne's actually, last I looked, was actually slightly in the lead with us over Captain Marvel. Yeah, that's because Wayne has a lot of his movies yeah. front loaded yeah. and yeah. also picked a lot of movies with really high Rotten Tomatoes yeah. scores. Yeah. Yeah. So should be interesting. Katia, where can people find you? On Instagram at just that nerd kid, mainly sewing content. You have been warned. <laughs> Good sewing content. Good sewing, Good sewing content, which occasionally sometimes overlaps with nerd content. Mm-hmm. See my agent Carter projects. Oh, I, I was I was just going to pretend that you were like you know that you were sewing a, a Bioshock suit. You know, <laughs> actually, that's been on. See, I have thoughts about cosplay. I enjoy the idea of it. It's a lot of work. Yes, it is. It is <laughs> so much work. What about you, Wayne? Uh, here mostly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, blog wayne-wise.com which at some point I I won't be submitting this paper anywhere else so I'll probably run the entire thing up with images on my blog at some point so okay sounds good and you can find me on twitter at chris maverick and you can follow my blog at www.chrismaverick.com and hopefully once these conferences are over i will be getting back to sort of doing more blogging i've been i've been behind people are worried you know i've skipped movie reviews on things that i've clearly seen like shazam and captain marvel and us and i just i just haven't had time so i'll get back to that but in the meantime you can follow the show on twitter at vox podcast on facebook at facebook.com slash vox podcast and on our blog at www.voxpopcast.com If you enjoy what we do, we'd appreciate it if you subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from. And do us a favor, and we say this every week, but please, please, please go and leave us a five-star review on iTunes and, you know, just write us something. We'll read it on the show, but it also helps other people find the show and makes us more famous we, through mystical podcasting algorithms. We might want to mention this at the beginning of the episode because I just assume people have stopped listening by the time you start asking for this. So. <laughs> Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll start doing that next week. <laughs> um, yeah, that's quite quite possible. This is the end of the show where where you know where we just BS about random stuff. Like I would also like to thank Maximilian of Thought Inform Music for our epic theme song that is building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to thank you at home for listening. And we'll see you next time for more of this discussion. Bye. Bye. Is this your reply? Yes, sir. Are you... Are you laughing at me? No. Are you rejecting me? I'm sure that the feelings which, as you've told me, have hindered your regard will help you in overcoming it. Might I ask why with so little endeavour at civility, I must repulse. And I might as well inquire why, with so evident a design of insulting me, you chose to tell me that you like me against your better judgment. No, believe me, I If I mean... was uncivil, then that is some excuse, but I have other reasons. You know I have.